Please take your Bible and open to the book of Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. You'll find it on page 2 of the Blue Pew Bibles in front of you. We are going through a nine-week search through the first three chapters of the Bible to see what they have for us to know about God and learn of his purposes for all creation and all history. So in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, where we have traveled so far and studied, we have already read Moses' account, which we understand he received from God, his account of the beginning of all things. And according to Genesis 1, God made all things. He created humanity as the pinnacle of his creation, male and female, on day 6 of the creation is when he did that. And so far in Genesis 2, we have understood how man, human, came to be in the garden, and man specifically in terms of gender in the garden. And this morning we find out how woman became part of the world. And we're thankful that God made women as well as men. We'll talk more about why we are so thankful for that and what it displays of him this morning. As Moses describes God's creation of woman, he remarks in verse 24 about marriage. Now, based on this, how how Moses tells us about the creation of a woman for the man, and then has this narrative remark in verse 24 in Genesis chapter 2, that this is leading us to understand something about marriage. Well, I'm going to take that cue, and I'm going to preach this morning largely about marriage. Now, even as I say that, I also want to say that you might be surprised about where Scripture will take us in our study of marriage this morning. Now, a couple of sensitivities that I have as I begin this sermon. First is my sensitivity to who it is that is speaking to you. I do not claim and hope I never claim to be in a position to tell you that my marriage or my husbanding is the thing you ought to replicate in your life. That my example is held up to you as the perfect one. I do not speak out of my perfection this morning. I speak in trust and our collective trust, knowing that it is God's perfect word that guides us in all truth. I'm not aiming at laying a crushing load of perfection on you. I am aiming To encourage us to rely on God and his grace. My other sensitivity is to who I'm speaking to. Kids, teens, singles, married, divorced, widowed. I thought of each of you as I wrote the sermon. More importantly, God knows each of your situations. And our trust, anytime we open God's word, whether it is to look at a specific topic or to look broadly, God's word has something to say to each and all of us. I trust you'll find that to be true again this morning. So I'm going to lead us as we think about Genesis 2 in three headings. Three headings. The first is the making of marriage. The second is the motivation for marriage. And third is the mystery in marriage. 
the making of marriage, the motivation for marriage, and the mystery in marriage. Let's begin with the making of marriage. And we'll read through verses 18 to 23 in, in their parts as we move through this point. But let me just set it up. In these verses, 18 to 23, God makes a woman and unites the man and the woman in the first marriage. Their relationship was to be lived before God in purpose and in unity. So having set that up, I'd like to make three observations to unpack. The first observation is this. God made men and women for relationship. Look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him, or as other translations say, suitable for him. God creates the woman and the man, the woman for the man, and the man. For the woman. He makes marriage as a response to what was not good, and in making marriage, he provides what is good. Marriage is God's good gift. The basic observation that this is about this text that God gives something good called marriage should stop our hearts and our tongues. From complaints and jokes we make that denigrate the institution God has made. Adam's relational isolation was not good. Neither is yours. If you are prone to spending too much time alone. Or too much time in false versions of community. It was not good for him, but it was also not a good representation of God either. You know, the triune God that we worship, God, Father, Son, and Spirit existing eternally. Do you know that that tells us something about what he's made us for? The, the Trinity exists in three persons in eternal relationship. Always relating to the other, always having, have, has been relating to each other in love and always will. Other religions fall short on this point. This is one of the main reasons why Buddhism and Islam are not viable representations of truth. For God, in their view, exists solely and individually. And would leave us with no conception of love or relationship or why that is good. God puts the man and the woman together in marriage. This becomes a building block of the society that God is making. Think about how this would operate in a perfect world going forward. Man and woman, I think, would be joined each to one and so would fulfill the purposes God made for the world. Which leads us to our second observation. God not only made marriage for relationship, but God gave marriage a purpose. Marriage Has a purpose. Look at verse 19 and 20. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed. Every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens. And brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature. That was its name. The man gave names to all livestock. To the birds of the heavens. And to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper 
fit for him. There's something missing. In Genesis 1, 26 to 28, God has already outlined humanity's purpose. And that was to rule over creation and to be fruitful and multiply in it. Make other humans who become likenesses and images of God. To spread God's image all over the world in the exercise of their authority and by giving birth to new humans. That was their purpose. So, as Adam goes about this task, as the dominion holder, he early realizes the limitations if he's to do this alone. God gives him the role of naming the animals and the authority to make that decision. But as Adam views the animals, and I think views them come to him for names as corresponding partners, Adam observes there isn't one of those like him or for him. Not only is Adam alone in the work, he is, because he's alone, unable to fulfill the work. He cannot be fruitful and multiply. So God makes woman. And through the woman, the marriage becomes how they both live out God's purposes for them. Paul will later call on this section of scripture to explain that God made men and women with certain roles. In marriage and in the church. You can read about that in 1 Timothy 2.13 or in Ephesians 5, which Jessica read earlier, or in 1 Corinthians 11. Those roles put succinctly are for husbands to lead in sacrificial love, for wives to support and submit in respect out of reverence to the Lord to their husbands, male elders in the church to give themselves to oversee and shepherd Christ's bride, the church, women as part of the congregation to follow and support the elders' leadership in so much as they lead toward Christ the head. But as all parts exist in partnership with each other, the ministry of glorifying God and following his purposes for us is lived out and fulfilled. You cannot do one without both. We praise God and applaud his design to make us well-suited as men and women together in the task he has given us as human beings. In these two primary spheres of life, in the home and in the church, men and women have complementary roles. Now, I'm going to give you my opinion for a second. I want to be careful beyond these specified arenas of home and church. We need to be careful not to place role limitations in arenas that God has not spoken into. There is no scriptural warrant I see that prohibits our Kansas City Police Chief Stacy Graves from serving in her role as head over the police force. Or a woman being a CEO of a major corporation. But on the other hand, there is no reason to denigrate or discourage women who have chosen not to do that in order to be in the home. A choice that I think becomes increasingly harder and harder to make in our society and culture. Even within families and churches, even while we affirm distinct roles, we want to make sure that we are always appreciating God's good design for partnership in the work That he has given us all to do. We are all in our roles to serve Christ. To serve his purposes. To do his work. Marriage 
has a purpose. Third observation about marriage. Marriage is a union. Marriage is a union. Look at verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So God puts Adam into a very deep sleep. He opens the man's side, takes out a physical part of him, the rib bone. Then he closes up the open place in his side. God takes the rib, he takes the part of the man, and around it builds a whole woman. By this act, God underscores that man and woman are the same in essence and nature. And yet they are also separate and distinct people. Matthew Henry says, The woman was not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side. To be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. Men and women are equal in the eyes of God, and yet not the same. We see this equality and this difference going all the way back to creation. So we praise God for how he created us by both recognizing that men and women are the same in value, dignity, purpose, and worth. And so we denounce any idea or action that would seem to deny that, be it abuse, derogatory language, or pitting one of the sexes against the other in animosity. God finishes his work, and he brings the woman to the man. The scene in verse 23 is like a wedding. God the Father prepares the woman to meet her groom. And he does this by making her and him perfectly suited for one another. Then God presents the bride to her groom. And clearly, the man is ecstatic in what he sees in the woman. Adam's response shows that what God did, he said he would do in verse 18. And he did it. God said, it's not good that the man is alone. I'll make a helper corresponding to him. And Adam says, I'm finally not alone. This woman corresponds to me. She is bone of my bone. She is flesh of my flesh. She could not be any closer to me without being the same person. She shares me. She is just as much a part of me as I am and vice versa. So here's a helpful lesson for our marriages, actually for all our relationships. When the man looks at the woman, he saw the difference. But he rejoiced in what united them. Take time to see the good in the people God has put around you that are not like you. Take time to be thankful for the spouse God has given you that is different from you. How could that perspective affect the fights and divisions that at times disrupt our marriages and relationships. How might love show in my life and yours if we were to believe and act on the belief that people are like us? 
not just unlike us. The man sees the woman and says, at last. His longing and his need for relationship has been fulfilled. How is that need met by God? Well, God gave man to the woman and the woman to the man, each to the other, so that they can enjoy physical, personal, and spiritual and emotional union. They could be united because they shared the same personhood and the same purpose. They were in every conceivable way now two and yet one. So step out for a moment and see that at creation, God made us to experience and enjoy unity with others. We are built by God to need, to need relational unity with others. It is the evil one who comes to kill and destroy. It's him who wants to tempt you to isolation and hiding. It's him who wants to have you rest your hopes on your own self-sufficiency. He is trying to turn you away from God's good design. And this is the beauty of the church that is available to us. That relational unity is possible here. This is the arena where God's spirit is working to bring us together as the same people around the same fundamental need we have. All that has been met by the same person, Jesus. That's why before the Lord's Supper, we will at times encourage each other to examine if there's any division between us. Like 1 Corinthians 11 says. This is why in our covenant that we promise to each other as members to work and pray for the unity of the bond in the bond of peace. That's why we promise that unity with other Christians is to be the norm. In Genesis 2, God is ordering then at the outset, he's ordering human relationship. The intended union and intimacy between man and woman is what we call marriage. Marriage was part of God's Good creation. Now, because of sin, there are many contemporary attacks on God's good gift of marriage. There is human selfishness that can lead to marriages ending. There is ongoing suffering within marriages due to sin. Marriage in our culture is ridiculed as an antiquated system. No longer necessary for enlightened modern man. People view marriage as something that can be taken or left, or they co-opt it and define it differently than God ordered it to be. But I want us to reset at creation. Because marriage was part of God's good and perfect creation, the union between a man and a woman, should we not assume, assume that had Eden continued, everyone would be married and there would be no divorce. Such, I think, was God's design. So, yes, much is about marriage is broken today. It has become hard. And the curse exists that prohibits us at time to live out our purposes. You may know that firsthand from your parents' marriage or a past marriage or your own marriage or a friend or loved one's marriage. Remember, God is in the business of restoring what he created. He redeems ultimately what is broken. 
He pursues in our lives an even better plan. We'll think about that in just a minute. But let's turn secondly. Secondly to see the motivation for marriage. The motivation for marriage. Look at verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. So in verse 24, the author Moses, who's writing to Israel, interjects with the narrator's comment. He basically says, given what I've told you so far, this is why marriage is so important. And if you read in other parts, whether it be in Jesus' teaching or in Deuteronomy, we understand in Israel marriage was being abused. Men were callously divorcing their wives for petty reasons. Women were being treated with injustice as a result. To counter this misuse of marriage, Moses reminds us marriage is not a human institution. It is a God-ordained and created institution. A marriage establishes a three-way covenant relationship between God, man, and a woman. That reflects the union that we were meant to perfectly enjoy with God and each other. It is oneness codified. A context where we think of each other as ourselves. And appreciate how God fits the other person to us. How much better we are able to do in it what God has given us to do with them than without them. How neither he nor she is more valuable or better, but equally very, very good. And to tell us just how good, Moses gives us verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. To illustrate how good Moses gives this verse, without sin in the world or their hearts, there was no relational barrier in this marriage. They were completely exposed and vulnerable to each other and at the same time completely comfortable, secure, and accepted. This is a beautiful scene. It is a a wonderful picture of a perfectly unified relationship. And I think, although limited, it is a helpful human analogy to the relationship that exists in the Trinity. God the Father, Son, and Spirit exist in complete harmony Yet all three taking different roles in redemption. The son, the exact representation of his father carrying out the father's will. The spirit supports the work of the son and helps him in carrying out the father's will. They are all equal in their nature and fully unified in love and purpose. Now for this age that we live in, marriage now, as we often hear it referred to, is marriage and the family are the societal building block of our passing world. God created it for that, and because he did, it's good. A compelling argument for God's existence is the widespread observance of marriage across cultures and across time. Do you realize that ever since we can trace back, people have been getting married? Given the inherent selfishness of people, it's hard to imagine we came up with this idea. Or that we sustained it, its observance, for all these years. This is God's work. And he built it into the fabric of society. And because marriage is God-given and good, we expect that marriage will be an ongoing part of our discipleship in this church. Not everyone is going to get married, but we will regularly be having people get married, I trust. 
And we already have among us many married people. If you aren't married, but you would like to be married, we want to help you have good motivations for marriage. And the way to do that is for you to begin checking your own motivations for marriage to make sure they are what God commends. So to be very blunt and to act as older 41-year-old Philip, to give a little advice to the younger people, here are some motivations for marriage to avoid. Don't marry for sex only. Don't marry mainly because you want to be a dad or a mom. Don't marry as a remedy for loneliness. Don't marry because everyone around you in your peer group is getting married. Don't decide to marry if you've only experienced infatuation with the other person, but you have not yet dealt with frustration at the other person. Don't marry because you think your spouse or your marriage will be the thing that will ultimately satisfy and fulfill you. Marry instead for this reason. Marry because you're ready to give yourself in a lifelong covenant commitment to another person who becomes your highest priority under God, even above yourself. Marry in order to have your whole life redefined by adding another person who becomes one with you. A person who you love as much as you love yourself. Marry to worship Christ in reflecting his love in your love for your spouse. In our discipleship with each other, we want to keep this godly motivation at the center so that we can help each other enjoy marriage for the gift that it is. Either before or after marriage, our personal motivations for marriage will get revealed. Be sure of it. What you are secretly motivated by to be married will show up when your expectations meet the reality of your marriage. And that's where we want to help each other. We want to help each other align our expectations around God's good promises for marriage so that when we get married or live in marriage, we get to enjoy what God has given instead of dwelling on what we didn't get because we selfishly and wrongly expected something different than what God was promising. In one-on-one discipleship, we will listen to each other, open up and share that the sex is not what we hoped or the differences are greater than we realized or the perspective of the spouse is incompatible with our own or our spouses aren't loving us like we hoped or like we demand or that marriage isn't all easy. And in discipleship, we can lovingly redirect and ask, what are you expecting? And is it what God is promising? We can press in and encourage our married brother or sister to appreciate the gift they've been given. Instead of dwelling on what they didn't get. And remember. Adam couldn't believe what he got. 
He couldn't believe what he got, which tells us how good of a gift it is. Eve was an undeserved gift to him that significantly improved his own life. And I trust that those of you who walked to the altar and made the lifelong vow, that is why many of you did it. Because you couldn't believe what God was giving you and your spouse. In appreciation for the gift we get, we respond and we vow rightly to give ourselves to treasure the gift of our marriage. But we will not enjoy marriage if the emphasis is on what we get for ourselves. To enjoy another person fully, you must be ready in marriage to give yourself to them completely. Man, you have the lead in this. You are the first giver. How does your wife know, husbands, that she is your first priority in this world? How could you communicate this to her in your words and actions even this week? Ladies wanting to be married, on that point, make sure the guy you want to marry shows you he knows how to give you for give to you first before he expects you to give back to him have him show you that he knows how to lead in a christ-like way and be willing to wait and trust god wives you are supporter and responder how does your husband know that he is your first priority in this world how could you communicate that to him This week in your words and actions. The motivations that we act on. Will be demonstrations of what we worship. The way we approach marriage or engage in marriage. Or decide not to marry at all. All can be ways to worship God who gives marriage. When we ask God for grace. And set our hearts to love and support our spouses as ourselves. And pursue unity in our relationship. We use marriage for the reason God gave it to us. To worship him. This is the motivation for marriage. Thirdly. The mystery of marriage. We have seen repeatedly in this series. That creation is only act one in a much larger drama. And more acts will come to develop the story. There are shadows that are cast in these early chapters. That point to a more substantial reality to come. Marriage is one of those shadows. At creation God set up a covenant relationship between God, man and the woman. And that relationship was damaged by sin. As we'll see soon in Genesis 3. Sin destroyed relational unity between God and humanity, between man and woman. The result? Marriage could no longer be lived in perfect unity. Because the image of God in them had been distorted. As it has been distorted in all bones and flesh that have come after them. In you and in me. Marriage can only provide perfect unity if all parties involved are themselves Perfect. And so after the fall, human human marriage starts to fade away in the Bible as the ultimate relationship. And a new marriage begins to appear in Scripture. A marriage between a faithful God who makes a covenant promise to people who have been unfaithful to him. Luke chapter 20, in fact, Jesus tells us, That God is working to build a new society in heaven and on earth where there won't be human marriage. 
I don't fully understand what that means. But instead, society will function on a new building block, the marriage between Christ and the church. And because human marriage is an institution then that we understand scripture is telling us will pass away in some way, the New Testament actually says the call of Christ redefines how important it is. As Paul considers in 1 Corinthians 7, 25 to 35, he sees that a new marriage has happened between Christ and the church. And he gives his opinion that in light of that, it's actually better to be single. Again, he underscores his opinion. And some will get married anyway. And that's not a sin. But it's an interesting passage. Paul is saying singleness in the new covenant is not a second tier position. It is actually to be considered potentially a preferred position. To give yourself completely to eternally minded kingdom work. If you are single and have chosen to serve the Lord in your singleness. Let that be a fresh encouragement to you. Use your life and your station for God's good purposes. Maybe even if you don't want to be single, but God has you in that position. Be encouraged to see through his lens how good your station can be for doing work that matters in his eyes while you are single. The fading nature of human marriage across scripture affects how we interpret Genesis 2. Genesis 2 does teach that marriage is good and part of God's good creation. But there is something more significant here to see. Go back to Ephesians 5 that Jessica read earlier. Ephesians 5. Paul quotes Genesis 2 in verse 31. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother... And hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Paul says that the shadow revealed in Genesis 2.24 is the shadow of a greater substance revealed in Ephesians 5.32. Yes, we can, with God's help, enjoy unity in the context of marriage now. Yes, marriage has a very good purpose for our life here on earth. But marriage between man and woman now in light of sin serves as a picture for a much better and greater marriage. The marriage between Christ and his church. This is the mystery in marriage. It is this Christ and the church marriage that will achieve complete union between God and man. For the remainder of our time, I want to meditate on that. To consider how God has gone about the process of marrying himself to his people through Jesus. After all of us sinned, God sent Jesus, his son, to earth. His son, equally God and man in nature. This son, though alone, lived completely sustained by his relationship with God through the spirit. God seeing that humanity was completely isolated from him and alone due to our sin, we were out of relationship from him and incapable of uniting ourselves again to the perfect trinity. God saw this and saw that it was not good. And so he gave to us his son. 
one who corresponds to us in our humanity, but without sin. Jesus comes to restore the union lost. Meanwhile, here we are. Scanning the creation, not finding what we need, but knowing that we are hungry without food and thirsty without water. Craving, but never satisfied. What none of us saw on our own was that union with God is what we were missing. We didn't need more to make our physical lives better. We needed spiritual life that comes from Jesus himself. And so Jesus, living in complete union with his father and in steadfast committed love to his people, comes and gives himself for us. Even though we were not faithful to him, he was faithful to us. From this perfect God-man, Jesus, God creates the church. How? God didn't put him to sleep. God put him to death. So that the life of God could be taken from Jesus and given to us. Not the passing physical life that comes and goes with our breath. But the lasting spiritual life contained in his blood and in his being. Jesus was nailed to a cross. Naked and shamed. Our sins lay on him openly exposed for all the world to see. So for those here this morning feeling ashamed. Look in belief, look in hope to the one who bore your shame and carries our sin. There on the cross, Jesus was cut off relationally from his father and from everyone else. It was not good that the perfect son should be alone, but it was for our good. On the cross, Jesus' side was opened Not with the great physician's careful surgery, but by man's cruel spear. And the wound that gushed blood was not healed up. Even after his resurrection, Jesus' followers could see the open side. And I suppose we will too in heaven. Through the blood that came from the side of the new Adam, Jesus, we can have oneness with God. I invite you, if you don't have relationship with the God who made you, the God you have sinned against, as we all have, the God who sent his son to save you and bring you into relationship with him through the death of his son, I invite you to see him today. To turn from the sin that has estranged you from God, to turn in trust to the son who can bring you to God. Repent and believe in Christ. I'd love to talk to you more about that after the service if you'd like to. We as a church remember this event in our life. The body opened, the blood shed. It is a symbol we hold and drink to remember that we are waiting for our final marriage. We have our marriages. Some of us have our physical families here and we seek to follow Jesus in them. But we are not one with them. We are one with the one who shed his blood for us. And one with all those for whom the blood was shed. Your relationship with the church is vital to your part in the family of God. You are as committed to them as you are your biological family. We will have fathers and mothers and sisters and brothers and children until we die. But the family of God we will have forever. Parents. And brothers and sisters in this church, remember that as we seek to disciple and share the gospel with our kids. Oh, we love them as part of our family now. But how much more will we love 
to see them as part of our family in heaven. Share the gospel with them. Pray for them. Love them. The church is the bride of Christ. And Christ is our long-for groom. Until we join him, Christ has given us his helper, his spirit. And what is his spirit doing? He's growing our unity in the faith, in the son, with one another. Even now the spirit is preparing us. Even now the spirit is making us beautiful. For the day we will be presented to the perfect man. And I imagine the look on Jesus' face will express something like what the first man said when he saw his bride. This is me. And when he looks on us, we will be like him. Because we'll see him as he is. Then for all eternity, we'll celebrate the greatest marriage ever. We will not be naked. We'll be dressed in the righteousness of Christ. Even now and even more so then, we will be known by what Christ has done to cover our sins, not by the sins he covered. And in that world, the shame taken by Jesus at the cross will be erased forever. God sent Jesus to make us one. To unite us to himself. To marry us to his son. And then to bring us into union with the Father, Son, and Spirit. The way to union with God is through the blood of the Son. If you're washed by his blood, you're wed to the Son. And if you're one with Christ, you will live as one with God. If you aren't, you will be forever alone, enduring the pain and punishment of your separation from God. So when that final wedding happens, will you be in it? Let's pray. We thank you that you've made marriage given it as a gift to all people everywhere. We thank, we're thankful for what we can enjoy of you in it. We pray we, we, you would lead us to enjoy it more for the purposes you've given it to us, that we would worship you through our marriages. We pray that you would motivate us to worship you either in singleness or in approaching marriage or in marriage. Pray that you would teach us what true worship looks like in each of those positions that you might get the glory from our lives in whatever station we're in. Lord, we pray that you would give us greater understanding of the mystery in marriage and what it means that we can be united through Christ's blood to you. These are things beyond what we understand. So much of it is things we need to know more of, and we want to. We pray your spirit would use the preaching of your word this morning to lead us into that greater understanding and experience of delighting in being married to your son. We pray anyone outside of you would be drawn by your grace and love today to be welcomed as part of that bride. Jesus, we praise you and thank you that You allowed your body to be broken and your blood shed so that we might be brought into life with God. What a gracious gift. What a perfect groom you are. Teach us how to love each other as you have loved us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.